Holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, have mercy on me. Holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, have mercy on us. Holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, have mercy on us. Christ, the true wisdom of God coming forth from the mouth of the Most High, reaching from heaven to earth, mightily and sweetly ordering all things, and waiting at our door to dine with us. We open that door now, eager to taste your words. So come and guide us in the path of prudence, and teach us your way that we may walk in your truth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Good evening, family. Again, good evening. I guess I said that three times. Oh, well. Hi. Um, We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 tonight. This is our third message in Ecclesiastes, and our 16th in the series, The College of Christ. Long, right? Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job is when we have graduated. That is the ultimate level of wisdom. You might remember we started with primary school with Lady Wisdom in the Proverbs. Now we are with Professor Vanity in the University of Wisdom. Um, and he is, his job is what university's job is. You learn the simple rules of life in grammar school, but then university happens to say, but have you considered all the exceptions to the rules in life? And Professor Vanity does just that for us. He shows us that, yes, Lady Wisdom was 100% right in everything she said, but there's a lot of things that sort of break the code. There's glitches in the wisdom world. And so Professor Vanity basically invites us to consider, Lady Wisdom told you an ideal version of wisdom. It's the happy wisdom version where everything works well. But in reality, we must contend with applying this wisdom east of Eden. We live outside Eden. We aren't in the garden where everything's being watered from the ground every day and everything grows fruitfully and there's no problems. We are living in a world that is actively opposed to the way of Christ's wisdom. And Professor Vanity says... This, we have to admit, let's stop pretending that the world is not evil. Let's stop pretending that everything will work out well for those who love God. They do in the end, right? But let's stop pretending that you will never stub your toe or step on a Lego again when you wake up out of your bed when the alarm clock goes off too late and you're too mad and too rushed. And there'll never be traffic when you pray that there won't be. Like, let's not pretend that the world is God is our genie and we just pray and things happen for us. Let's not pretend that. That's what I meant by things working out for our good. My good. Things work out for my good according to God's interpretation of good. So, um, that's Professor Vandy saying, let's be honest, let's be real about all these things. So, here's what we want to consider as we go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I want you guys to imagine that you are at a table with Christ. He's invited you and a few others to sit and eat with him. And someone across the table from you asks him a question. Would you answer the question for the gentleman? Or would you be sitting on the edge of your chair, eager to hear what Christ has to say in response to the question? If you are thinking the latter, that you would wait and hear, you're wise. But what Ecclesiastes will tell us tonight is that if you're quick to answer, you're a fool. 
Now, that illustration, super clear, and I think most of us know what we would do in that situation. But the reality is, Professor Vanity tells us, is that when we come before God, we often take the path of the fool. Because outside of Eden, worship gets distorted and prayer becomes an incantation to use God for our means. Use God as a means for our end. And so he is going to show us how to worship in this life east of Eden, in this life outside of Eden. So, in summary um, of where we've been, um, vanity is the key word 40 times in this book. And he opens up with three. Vanity, vanity is all is vanity. And the word is challenging because some people say it means meaningless, but that's not quite what it's encapsulating. It also refers to mist and fog, and it's hard to see things and discern things. And so I love what best what one book said is that vanity refers to the incomprehensibility of life. And in the book, the professor, through his series of lectures, will show us this incomprehensibility of life in two clear ways. Well, it won't be clear because it's all incomprehensible. But he will show us two ways in which it's incomprehensible. The first is that life is brief. The brevity of life is vanity. And then second, this will start next week. Second, the uncertainty of life. That we can't predict outcomes. We can't judge what is right and wrong all the time. Sometimes things are sticky. Sometimes it feels like we're driving in the narrows in fog. That's what life feels like often. And so... That also is vanity. This is what he means by vanity. Incomprehensibility. Also important to understand is that the word vanity in Hebrew is hevel. And hevel is the Hebrew, what we take, that's also a name, and we take the name, and in our English way of saying it, we say Abel, or it's hevel, Abel. Abel is a parable, if you will, of vanity. Because Abel's life, first of all, one of the first lives east of Eden, and his life was incomprehensible. It was incomprehensible because of its brevity. He was killed young. And because of its uncertainty. He did everything right. He worshipped God the right way. He was righteous. And yet his evil brother Cain murdered him. So Abel becomes the personification of the professor's message of vanity and the incomprehensibility of life. In chapter 1... Uh, the professor introduces to us the idea that life is brief. And chapter one was all about these poetic ways of saying how life just goes round and round and it's brief and things go and they come and people don't even remember the last generation. We talked about, do you even remember who won the World Series two years ago? And things like that. Or the Super Bowl, whatever is your thing. Um, in chapter two, he then launches into the results of this brevity of life. We as humans don't handle the brevity of life very well. So in chapter 2, the professor shows how he himself went to a flurry of activity. An activity in pleasure and projects, because this is one of the ways we bubble wrap ourselves against the brevity of life. Life's incomprehensible, it's vanity. So we pursue and pour ourselves into these activities of pleasure and projects. And as a result of this, chapter 3 shows us that we have an anxiety about time. Because if we're trying to ward off the brevity of life through our activity, then our activity will produce an anxiety about time because there's never enough time to do what we need to do and these people are taking time from me and I can't seem to manage time the way I want it to. And so he gave us a little tutorial about the anxiety of time and the Christian way to manage time. 
And then, that was also chapters 3 and 4. And then tonight, we come to our third reaction to the brevity of life. And that is that we try to manage it through prosperity and wealth. So if our activities fail, if our anxiety is about time overwhelm us, we just try to throw money at it. We try to accumulate it and guard ourselves with it. And even though, I don't think any of us are really rich financially, but even if we had a lot of money, you don't even need a lot of money. You, if you simply look at money as a means to comfort, you are using one of the classic human ways to guard yourself against the vanity of the world. So, here we go. Chapter 5, verse 1, we're actually going to come back to, but he's, that's where he's going to talk about guarding your steps when you go to the house of God. So just know, chapter 5 starts with this idea of worshiping God in his house. But I want to start by going in verse 8. Because what we need to see before we get to that is what we often do. How do we find prosperity east of Eden? Well, we often look for it in wealth, in money. And so he's going to tell us, prosperity is not in money. It's not in money. Um, the world believes that time is money. If I just manage it right, if I work, I get money. Time is money. And notice, ironically, that this issue of money in chapter 5, verse 8, is coming up right after the two chapters he teaches us how to manage time in a Christian way. See, God is telling us time is not money. These two don't necessarily go together. God stands in between the two. And we must have an orientation around God. Um, and so, he's going to tell us that money is not the lasting path to prosperity. You might get a few comforts, but it won't last. So here's what he's going to say about it. East of Eden, outside of Eden, we must contend with money. It's a reality. We have to. In a fallen world, money is how we can somewhat trust each other and get goods to move to and fro, right? We must deal with money. Maybe in the perfect world of Eden, maybe in the new heaven, the new earth, we won't have to. But right now, we have to. And east of Eden, money is, he says five things about it. Money is first, it's used unfairly. Money is used unfairly. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. Why? Because east of Eden, money is used unfairly. So don't be amazed at it. For the high official is watched by a higher, and yet there are higher ones over them. And so sometimes the person that's misusing money is not even evil himself. He's under pressure from a greater evil above him. But in verse 9, this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. (laughs) Because in the biblical law, when you cultivated a field, you weren't supposed to get every little corner. You were supposed to leave the edges for the poor to come and gather food. That's why the professor blesses a king who's devoted to cultivated fields. Money is used a little more fairly. But you never see that. You don't see that these days. Second, money is unable to guarantee tranquility in life. It cannot guarantee tranquility. Verse 10. 
He who loves money will be satisfied. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. That's also very incomprehensible, isn't it? When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Or in other words, if you've got prosperity and wealth, money is not going to guarantee tranquility in your life. You may not be able to sleep well, as this rich person is always worrying about, how do I protect this? How do I grow this? What if somebody wants something from me and is trying to take advantage of me? Third, east of Eden, money is unable to guarantee security for life. It can't guarantee security. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Remember, I believe that's his phrase for east of Eden. Under the sun means outside of God's land of Eden. There's a grievous evil under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but has nothing in his hand, implying nothing in his hand to feed his son with. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. And just when you thought you got to financial liberty and this is the security you need, you could lose it all. So it cannot guarantee security. Fourth, East of Eden, money is unable to guarantee quality of life. We're skipping verse 18. We'll come back to it. Chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. Money can't guarantee quality of life. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Verse 3, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it is not seen the sun or known anything. Yet it finds rest rather than he, the wealthy man. Even though he should live, a wealthy man, live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. And that place he means is death, not necessarily hell or heaven, just death. Now, there it sounds very low and dark. Better a stillborn. Um, The professor's not saying that a miscarriage or a child that dies is a great thing. He's saying that to the wealthy man who looks at that life that was never lived, he thinks, well, how much better, how sad, I got to do all these things, and blah, 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 blah. And the professor is really sort of tongue-in-cheek just saying, "Uh, yeah, but at least that child knows rest, and you can't find it. You can't buy it. You have no quality of life despite all of the wealth and prosperity that you have. 
So east of Eden, money is unable to guarantee quality of life. And in conclusion, he says, it's ultimately vanity. East of Eden, money is vanity. Verse 7, chapter 6, 7. Chapter 6, verse 7. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. And that concludes the first half of the book of Ecclesiastes. That also is how he concludes the three segments of the first half. Each time he concluded with, this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. So we know we've come to the conclusion of his talk on money, prosperity. How do we, how do we cope with this brevity of life and this vanity? Well, we just heard he said prosperity is not found in money. And now you know why. He gave us some bleak examples of why you can't find prosperity in money. Where do you find it then? Is there any hope? Yeah, we skipped over them. So now we're going to them. In verse 18, chapter 5, verse 18, he's going to give us two answers to where prosperity may be found. And the first is not new if you've been hearing any of our messages in Ecclesiastes. This is the third time he's going to say this. Prosperity is found in receiving the generosity of God's gifts. Prosperity is found in receiving, not achieving, not working, not earning, not making myself something. It's in receiving the generosity of God's gifts. So verse 18. Behold, chapter 5, 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. I believe what he means there is you're not going to fret much over your life because... Joy is bubbling from the inside out. And here's what he's telling us. By enjoying and receiving the gifts of God and his generosity, you are now establishing within your soul a position that always finds joy regardless of your financial prosperity or lack thereof. Now, we, we talked about this before, because again, this is the third time he said this. In each of the three segments, he has concluded that we are meant to enjoy the gifts of God. But it sounds an awful lot like what people say today. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Well, yes, he is saying that, but there's a nuance here. In the world, we say thing, we, we have hedonism, we have carpe diem, we have YOLO, all these sayings and slangs where basically life is short, like the, pre, like the professor's saying, so let's party. But they're saying that because to them, this is all there is. East of Eden is life. Make the most of it. Because that's all there is. There is no west toward Eden. There's only east of Eden. But the professor is saying, this is not all there is. Enjoy it because this is what there is. Don't go breaking your soul trying to make more out of the world that God has already given to you in generosity. 
Instead of trying to make more of it or being discontent, receive it as his gift. Because as we receive the gifts of God and enjoy them, we are returning them to him in thanksgiving. And this is our role, is as God pours his gifts out, we receive them with gratitude and we give them back to him in thanksgiving. Not in grumbling. We know how the Israelites were in the wilderness. That's the opposite of this. We are thankful for the gifts he's given us. So the professor says, look for these things because there lies your prosperity. Not in the amount of what you have, but in your ability to receive it as God's gift and thank him for it. That's prosperity. Also, the second way to prosperity is found in receiving. So first, receiving uh, the generosity of God's gifts, but now receiving the reality of God's glory. Receiving the reality of God's glory. Chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Remember the man sitting at the table? Ask the question, are you going to answer? Are you going to be quick to say, oh, I know, I know, or are you going to listen to Christ? <laughs> Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness or business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have or pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So here he's talking he's warning he's cautioning us prosperity is found in receiving god's glory receiving the reality of his glory not rushing into his house like we do with everything else east of eden with our flurry of activities with our anxiety about time and our desires for prosperity if you bring those into the house of god your mouth is going to be running to god about all the things you need his help in accomplishing and all the ways that you need him to kind of uh, do your part here god i'm pulling a lot of the weight <laughs> and unfortunately we can use God like this if we're not careful. Worship east of Eden can all too often become a means to our glory. We don't want to receive the reality of God's glory. God's there. Sure, we acknowledge that. But we want to use him so that we can achieve our glory. We don't want to receive his glory. We don't, we don't want that. Because if we are allowing the haunting message of the brevity of life to get to us, then we will begin to see God and religion and church and Christianity as things rather than truth. So we're encouraged to approach God with fear, with reverence. So how do we worship God east of Eden? 
How do we do this? This is serious stuff. And we need to understand that we can come to him with our anxieties and our desires to try to beat the brevity of life, to try to make something of ourselves, or we can come to him receiving life as it really is and allowing him to be our all in all. So let's look at this. Worshiping God, east of Eden. Uh, I want to give you guys two ways that this must be done. And that is, first and foremost, worship starts with God and not with us. Worship starts with God and not with us. You just heard verses 1 through 3. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. What is he saying there? He's warning us that worship doesn't start with me. I don't rush in and say, here I am to worship you. Actually, those are actually lines of a song, aren't they? It was a good song at its time. That's probably the reason it's not sung much anymore. (laughs) Because this is what we need to see, is that worship is a call from God. Worship exists because God calls us to worship him. There's nothing in me that says, oh, I'm, I, God, you're so great. I've got such keen eyes to understand. You're the true beauty of all the universe. It's the total opposite. I will keep on, as C.S. Lewis says, playing with tin cans in mud slums if it were me left to myself. But it's when God calls me and says, hey, have you ever considered a holiday at sea or in Cancun or wherever? Have you ever considered this? That's when I begin to realize, what am I doing with my life? This is so, I am succumbing to the vanity of life. God calls us and we respond to his call. That's where worship starts. So he says, when you go to the house of God, in verse 1, when you go, we don't go to church and try, try to start the fire, right? Rubbing sticks together and getting our flint out. That's not what we do when we gather. When you walked in this room, this room has not only been prayed for, and anointed with oil, but we're also actually entering into a thin realm where heaven and earth become somewhat merged, and we are entering into the eternal praises of God around his throne, which are going on forever and ever. We are called and we are invited into the worship of God. Contrast, culture is totally different. In culture, we don't learn to be called, we learn to call upon. We are an on-demand society. It isn't when they say, where they say, how they say, it's when I say, where I say, how I say. And Netflix, we can, for all the things we can say, oh, it's just a part of my life. Things like this in our iPhones, they teach us how to be masters of our own reality. And we are living an on-demand life. Because everything is at my literal fingertips. But worship doesn't work this way. We are called, we put things down, and we go to a place and at a time when God says. That's how worship starts. We go to the house. It's a call. Um, We also see another way that it originates in God. You see in verse 1 it continues and says, um, when you go to the house of God. And I just want to take a minute there for us to think about what is the house of God? The house of God, as Jesus said very clearly, first Isaiah said it, then Jesus quotes it to reiterate it to his people who lost their way. The house of God is a house of prayer. Someone over here is a great student. Matthew 21, verse 13. Jesus said to them after he cleanses the temple, it is written, 
My house shall be called a house of prayer. So when God calls us to his house, when he calls us to worship, he calls us to prayer. That is what this is, is a house of prayer. Yes, it's a house of preaching. Yes, it's a house of fellowship. Yes, it's a house of singing. But do you understand what we are endeavoring to do every week? And I am especially hoping to try to get this out to us so we understand and see that everything we're doing is prayer. Sometimes we speak prayers, petitions. Sometimes we sing prayers, songs. Sometimes we see prayer. We light the candle because it's a visual reminder of all of what it means to be forgiven and to be the light of the world and the Holy Spirit coming upon us as the tongue of fire. Sometimes we hear prayer. Right now in the scriptures, you're hearing the voice of Christ in his word, hopefully through some of the words I'm saying, and I'm not being the fool saying too much, but we're hearing prayer. And, and we, get to, we get to eat prayer as we partake in communion. From beginning to end, this is prayer, and this is what the house of God is for. So worship is, it starts in God, not in us. But then that leads us to the challenge, the challenge. If we're talking about this as a house of prayer, we must come to this final realization. That worship and prayer is more impressive when it is less expressive. I mean that in two ways. Prayer and worship are more impressive when they're less expressive. Culturally, we think of worship as coming from us. It starts with us, so we often like to pour out the way we feel to God. We like to let him see our demonstrations, and we like to source it from us and give it to him. Now, the the, the heart there is fine. I understand we want to give him something, but that's not where worship starts. That's not where it starts. And in our society, I fear that we've gone far too much toward the expressive end of things. Just turn on a very popular worship video with people in the audience and the whole stage thing and the display. And and just when you watch that, there's one word for it. Expressive. It's not wrong, but it's out of balance. Okay? Worship is more impressive when it is less expressive because worship starts in God, not in me. So, think of, for example, um, the greatest commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, or your might. How does God start that command? Love the Lord your God? And that was actually the second command. <laughs> Hear, O Israel, listen, O Israel, listen, O children of the living God. That's God's first command to us is don't rush. Don't rush in here with all the things you've got to get off your chest. There is time and a place for that. But come and hear Christ first. So God is not telling us, uh, prayer, excuse me, prayer is not a place where we tell God what to do. Prayer is a place where God tells us who to be. That's where it starts, okay? That's where it starts. God tells us who to be. Prayer is meant to form us in accordance with God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
This is where it starts. It's meant to form us first before we try to inform God. It must form us in accordance to his name, his kingdom, his will. And so that means rather challengingly that prayer cannot be the express of my soul to God, but rather the impress of God upon my soul. That's what prayer is. It's him having a chance because I'm silent. I'm coming before him surrendered with no agenda, but to hear, oh, Brandon, the Lord, your God, and he can impress his being, his name, his will, his glory, his character, his virtue, his plans and purposes for my life into me. That's what I need. We don't need the dreamer coming in and spouting off our business to God for where the fool's voice comes that's where the fool's voice comes, he says. He says this twice, that it's not dreams. We don't come into the house of God with dreams. God, hear our dreams and answer our ambitions. That's not where worship starts. There might be a place to say that every now and then. But it starts by letting God impress himself into us. That's why I say worship is more impressive when it is less expressive. So prayer is meant to teach us, to lead us, to orient us, and to form us. That's why just free and expressive prayers aren't enough to change us. Please, don't mishear me. A free and expressive prayer where I just pour my heart out before God is right and okay. I am not condemning that. That is not wrong. But we too often lean on that alone. And it's not enough. We must be impressed by God. Then can we express to him. Um... I've, uh, I'm trying to model some ways you guys can do this in your lives. I've met with some of you guys in smaller groups, one-on-one. Um, we do a little bit of this in our worship services every week. Um, we have formed prayers. That's what I call them. I call them formed prayers because there's a form to them. <laughs> and there's the form, and you go with it. Because it's like rails on a track. It gets you going. you got to have a form. And then when we are led rightly, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now we can ask for our daily bread and the forgiveness of our sins and loving our enemies and that we will not be led into evil. Now we can begin to ask, right? We start formed so that God can impress himself on us. Then we can express. Then we can go into free flow. What does my heart want to say or pour out before God? The balance is important because worship starts with God, not with us. And that's what the professor is warning us against in the first three verses. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Second, worship starts, we had said one, worship starts with God, not with us. Second, worship dies. It dies without honesty and humility. And this is the counterbalance to what we just said. Because if all I do is recite other prayers, am I ever honest with God? No, there's, a, there's an importance here where our hearts are unveiled and they're real before God. This is where verse 4 through 7 come in. And he's, it, it's kind of weird to think about because we don't really talk this way, but he's talking about the vows. When you make a vow to God, make sure you pay what you vow. I don't remember the last time I said, I, uh, well, actually, we probably have all done it at some point in our life. Lord, if you give me all this, I swear, or I promise, or I vow, or I will dedicate. We don't have to talk about how many of you guys have fulfilled that. You can repent on your own and get your act together. Um, but he does warn us against don't be hasty with that. 
And here's what I'm seeing this. I'm seeing this, this, this. First, he's saying we must be humble before God. In other words, we don't come before God because we've got this dream, we've got this ambition, we've got this way to kind of outwit the vanity of life. So, Lord, deliver for me and I'll do this. And then he delivers like, yes, like we deserved it, right? I worked hard for that. So we never think of repaying. So he's saying, be humble. Don't use God as a means to your end. God is your end. So prayer is not the tool. Prayer is where we find our prosperity in God, east of Eden. It's, it's there. That's what we need. We don't use it for something else. This is what it is. Meeting with God. Uh, the, the church fathers called prayer the, uh, they called it, uh, the deifying virtue. Because this is the one act human beings can do that gets us closest and most where God is. Of course, if it starts with him and not us. Because then he can impress himself into us. Um, I got a little off there. Okay, humility, yes. Worship dies without humility and honesty. Second, I think he's talking about these uh, vows here because, yeah, humility. Don't just promise to get your way. But honesty. If you say you're going to do it, do it. But maybe behind this too, maybe behind this is let's just get to a place where we don't even have to make deals because we live so open and unafraid with our Father. We live so honestly with him in our prayer and worship that there are no vows that need to be repaid. Our life is the vow of being repaid. And this is important because I think sometimes we come to prayer and we want We want to be right in prayer and worship, but God doesn't want us to be right or good. Maybe that's the word we're looking for. We want to be good in prayer. And so we we try to make sure we're saying the right things and we're doing it well. But really what God wants is our honesty in worship. If you're mad, be mad. What, 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 seriously, what is this? Like, God's like, oh, I don't see that you're mad because you're hiding it from me right now. You're just, you're just doing praise things. And like, I just, it's like, is God fooled? Seriously? No, if you're mad, he wants your honesty. Read the Psalms. The Psalms are very clear that God wants honest prayers. Psalm 137, may blessed is the one who takes your infants and bashes their heads against the rock. Oh, there, there's a great formed prayer for you. Try it. The, the point there is that we don't sanctify that. By these lanes, they go do that. Um, the point is that God is inviting us to honest prayers. And if we need to pray our anger before him, we pray our anger before him. We don't hide it. Because he knows anyways. Did you know that it was hiding our prayers, our true condition of our heart from God, which got us in this mess to begin with? Now, I believe I'm right, but this is a little aside where it's Pastor Brandon's theology. Um, But I believe I'm right. Um, That our fall was not exactly because we ate the fruit from the wrong tree, That was obviously wrong. God said that was a sin, and that was a sin. But that wasn't our fall. Our fall was when God came looking for us, and we were behind the trees, and we were covered in fig leaves, hiding from him, dishonesty, covering ourselves. And then, when we finally came before him, we were still hiding the woman you gave me. (laughs) The serpent. We, we passed the blame. That was when we went east of Eden. I believe, Pastor Brandon's theology here, which is right, I believe, I believe that God was there bringing them to confession, but they did not open their hearts to him. 
And I believe that because I believe that God did not become forgiving because Jesus died on the cross. I believe that he always has been gracious and forgiving and that the cross reveals to us who he's always been. We were unwilling to see it. God doesn't change. Would would Adam and Eve said, we sinned, forgive us. I believe we'd be in Eden. And that is true of our spiritual lives and in prayer and worship. If we will sustain and press into honest prayer and worship with our Father, we will be moving westward toward Eden. That, by the way, is what the church is. It is the seedlings of the new Eden. The language of Revelation is the new heaven and the new earth. But it's the same idea. The tree of life is there and so forth. This is why Jesus talks about parables about a sower sowing seed and the seed growing to bear fruit. This is why Paul tells us to bear fruit. Because we are the seedlings of the new Eden. This is what the church is. Um, So there you go. Our prosperity is in worshiping God. But how do we worship East of Eden? Well, we must start with God and not us. And we must also worship in humility and honesty. So, brothers and sisters, the balance is delicate. The balance is important. I need formed prayers to guide me because I can never guide myself past myself. So I pray uh, the morning prayers of St. Philaret of Moscow, of St. Basil the Great. I do the confession, the Book of Common Prayer. I say the Apostles' Creed. I sing the morning doxology. I uh, do the Lord's Prayer, the Jesus Prayer. Uh, there might be one or two more. Uh, the Song of Zechariah. These are form prayers. They don't change. I do these because they form me. It's God impressing his will upon me. But then in between all of this, there are lots of spaces where I express thanks and praise and I pray for needs and I pray for you guys and every prayer that goes in the box has its spot where I pray for those names. There is place for both. And this, nothing more has enriched my prayer life than realizing that it starts with God and not with me. So brothers and sisters, we can begin to see the fruits of Eden in our lives, not just the vanity of this world, if we take the professor's advice and worship and pray, but know that it starts with God, not with us, and that it needs to be honest and humble. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work.